Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Promo Kitchen Podcast. We are a community-inspired conversation featuring boundary pushers, rabble-rousers, freaks, and geeks who are shaking up the $20 billion promotional products industry. My name is Mark Graham, one of the chefs here at Promo Kitchen, and I'm joined by fellow chef Charity Gibson for a special and important episode of our podcast. We have all been reeling from the news around sexual harassment that's been coming out of Silicon Valley, Hollywood, and a range of other industries. It's depressing and shocking all the same that this behavior has been happening for so many years at the expense of countless innocent victims. The heartbreaking Me Too posts that we have seen all over the internet this past week provided further testimony to the problem of sexual harassment around the world and to be quite frank, in every industry, including the promotional products industry. Promo Kitchen was established six years ago to foster education and mentorship in the industry. The organization was set up by a curious group of industry professionals who are committed to starting conversations, bringing people together to improve the industry, and addressing the white elephants in our midst. It's in this spirit that we wanted to start a conversation about sexual harassment and the impact it has had on our industry. Charity is with us here today to talk directly about her experience with sexual harassment and abuse. There is something that all of us can learn from her journey. Please note that this is an honest conversation between two industry colleagues. While some parts of this conversation may make some people uncomfortable, we believe that this is a story that needs to be told. With that said, let's get the discussion started. So Charity, do we have a problem with sexual harassment in the promotional products industry? So I'm going to answer that as yes and no. There are definitely people in the industry and situations that occur in the industry because of our unique environment that I think lends itself, if we're not careful, to definitely some big problems. And I know that I have experienced this on my own and talking with other professionals in the industry, they've also experienced the same thing. So I, I'm not going to say it's like an epidemic necessarily, but I do think that, that it is very prevalent and something that needs to be addressed. So you talk about our unique environment. Can you talk a little bit about what makes our particular industry unique in regards to situations that may lead to sexual harassment? Absolutely. Well, I think the very first thing that I want people to understand is kind of what sexual harassment even is. Like, how do you define that? And, you know, one definition I found was unwelcome sexual advances, requests for sexual favors, and other verbal or physical conduct of a sexual nature. And so I think people don't realize, you know what, that's in messaging that we send to people. And, you know, sometimes it's just a smack on the butt or a cute little something that we would say that maybe mentions inappropriate body parts or things like that. And I should, you know, definitely put this out there first thing. I'm not a prude. I'm definitely one of the bros in a lot of a sense. And so I tolerate a lot of this just because, you know what, it's sometimes it's funny and things like that. And I realize even my behavior is not always probably appropriate in helping to prevent some of this. And 
you know, so again, the verbal or physical conduct of a sexual nature, some of those dirty jokes and things that we say to people, it, you know, it might seem like it's harmless inside of a social group, especially a closed social group with a certain group of people or what have you. But even that is not okay because it has implications that can spread outside of that and can, you know, definitely make people feel uncomfortable. And in our industry specifically, you have a lot of people that are on the road, all of our road warriors that are out there, they're home very infrequently, they're away from home more than they're there. In a lot of cases, I think for the most part, people are very loyal and, you know, a lot of people are very happy in the relationships and the sales environment is very fulfilling for them. But in some cases, I think there's a lot of loneliness that occurs, different hotel rooms every night, different bar scenes, things like that. And loneliness, I think, can very quickly turn to depravity. And our industry is prime for this because you do have those people. They're away from home. Maybe they are happy most of the time. There was a situation that occurred before they left. And you mix that unhappiness and whatever it is with alcohol and oftentimes drugs and these seemingly innocent banters back and forth, which seem that they're okay and they're, they're really not even okay in and of themselves, but you mix that with all of the factors that I just mentioned and it's truly a recipe for disaster. And that is, I mean, a lot of industries probably have this, but our industry especially just because there's so much traveling and so much away from home and so much people trying to escape. And I know when I came into the industry, I've grown a lot and matured a lot in my journey and in my career and in my home life, I've made some huge changes. But when I first came in, I was innocent and from small town Tucson and didn't know any better. And man, did I learn really quickly. And looking back now over the last, you know, just seven years that I've been really, really involved with the industry, I'm like, man, you know, things that you don't even really realize because you're too naive to realize the language or the the talk that's going on. And you just kind of laugh. You're like, ha ha ha. Okay. And then Looking back now, I'm like, no, that was not okay. It was definitely not okay. Did you find that perhaps uh, younger and newer entrants into our industry may be particularly prone to sexual harassment? Because as you say, they're in a social situation. There may be alcohol. They want to fit in. They want to impress their client. They want to impress their superior or their boss or, or even just a colleague. And as you say, it may be an offhand comment and something that maybe this particular person in the industry does not want to speak up about, but ultimately makes them feel uncomfortable. I mean, it sounds like that's what you're saying. You first started that everyone wants to fit in to some extent. And if it means they have to pass off or maybe ignore a comment that made them uncomfortable, you know, I think that's part of the problem. Absolutely. Yeah. Pass off or ignore or you know, even you don't want to offend somebody and you don't want them to feel uncomfortable or not buy from you or not want to be around you and you want to be part of the cool social circle. So you, you play back at the right. joke. And, and I think just as humans, I mean, we do that. So it's not something that's, you know, specific to our industry. And like I said, I tend to be one of the bros when it comes to that too. So I'm not as sensitive to it as I probably even should be. But yeah, I mean, absolutely. And sometimes I think we do it, you know, not even consciously, yeah. like, you know, we just laugh along at something. And if you are the one laughing along with it and not putting a stop yep. to it when you, maybe you didn't know better, but now you do, you're almost yep. just as guilty of the harassment as the actual person, you know, cracking the joke or making the inappropriate yep. statement. Yep. So I think you'd say the same thing in really any environment where that's, let's say a, a bully and a victim, it may have nothing to do with sexual harassment, but it could be 
in the schoolyard and it could be a bully that's making fun, either physically abusing or verbally abusing someone else in the schoolyard. And if you sit back and you may laugh about it or you look at it and turn a blind eye because you don't want to get involved, but it's the same thing. So I'm glad that you kind of made that connection. It is. And I think people also don't recognize, again, the implications of that because especially females, and I don't say this to, and I I don't, you know, it's not a gender thing with me necessarily, but I think females especially because of the pressure that's put on us, you know, societal pressures and things like that. We have to look a certain way. We have to act a certain way. We're not, you know, some people, women feel that they're not necessarily taken seriously in the marketplace and they have to fight for their stock. They have to fight for their position within their company. And, you know, I, I think that that plays into it a lot. And because of that, and I, again, earlier on in my career, this was a lot bigger of a deal for me than it is now because I've gained yep. a lot of confidence. I know my worth. And I think that I make that very apparent both in a social and, and in a, a real life setting is I have gone through some stuff and you start to realize what truly makes you beautiful, but not everybody is there. And more importantly, not everybody gets there. And even me who's halfway there is not all the way there. And so there's a lot of feelings of inadequacy, especially, you know, parents, like moms, new moms, especially. It's like, we're just not enough. We never feel like we are enough. We don't do enough. We don't look pretty enough. Our boobs aren't big enough. Our, you know, legs aren't, you know, firm enough. Our, all of these things. And people can say all day long that, you know, especially men, it's like, no, you're beautiful. You're beautiful. And then they go into these closed group settings and you hear what really happens. And why wouldn't we feel inadequate? And so when we do hear somebody say, oh, you're beautiful or, oh, you know, make an inappropriate comment because of those feelings and because of that lack of confidence or because of whatever it is, you know, we let it continue. Why? Because, you know, I think in some cases there is a little bit of you know, ego stroking that goes on. It, it does make us feel good, but it's feeling right. good for the wrong reasons. And right. that it, needs it, to it, stop. It feels like it's a very transactional short term thing to do to either put up with that kind of behavior or to, as you say, get the ego stroke. And I think what's also really interesting and I think important to mention about how a lot of business is done in a lot of industries, I'm not just necessarily looking specifically at the promotional products industry, but we all know that people do business with people they like and no one would argue with that. That's actually a very good construct to understand. But where it gets murky is that You may do business with people that you like, but then what happens if bonding happens in some sketchy closed door after hours party environment, which again is totally fine. People are adults, they can do as they wish. But within that environment, let's say things are happening that make the female professionals in our industry maybe uncomfortable, but if they know, well, hang on a second, some serious business is getting done behind those closed doors. I want to be a part of those discussions. I want to be engaging. I want to be representing my supplier line or my distributor line in a favorable way. So I will go in, I will play ball. And that's where some of the problems start to occur. And I just wanted to say that, but I wanted to see whether you've got a comment about that because I steadfastly believe that we're in an industry now and I think forever that will always be based on human relationships and doing business with people that you like. But I think where it gets very sad and potentially very damaging is is when certain people are excluded because of the environments and some of these after-hour parties where some really bad things can go down. Absolutely. You touched on a very important subject. Our industry is unique over some other industries in that 
we're a very closed ecosystem, right? So the number of people that are here are the number of people that are here. And so if you don't mesh with a particular social group or you don't really fit in with the people that you're supposed to be selling to, there's not very many other avenues. There's not very many other places that you can go to try and build a client base unless you're going to, you know, make a micro industry outside of our industry. That's obviously illogical and not going to happen. And so there's a, a lot of pressure to you know, be liked and just kind of go with the flow and let things happen the way that they're, that they're happening. And, oh, well, this is the norm. So of course I have to participate because who else is out there that can be my client? And obviously the ocean is big and the forest is large and there are different places to go to be able to seek customers that wouldn't put you in that type of situation. But in a lot of cases, you know, when you're, you want to chase elephants instead of rabbits, there's very few places yep. that you can make that happen. And so I think that there's a lot of pressure. And I mean, just to play devil's advocate too, I would say just, you know, so the guys feel some love here too. I don't think it's limited. Obviously, I think it's mostly prevalent in males being yep. more predatory towards females, but I think it probably happens, you know, on the opposite side yep. as well. I don't know what that looks like or or how I haven't heard stories, but I would venture to say that, you know, there's probably some guys out there too feeling it. So I sympathize for them as well. A hundred percent. And I think that's really important to communicate that. Sure. Maybe statistically speaking, we may be looking at situations where it's a majority male environment that are the perpetrators of sexual harassment, but it's absolutely important to acknowledge that this happens in same sex environments. And I think you do also see it with some women that will prey upon men. And there certainly are examples of that. And they are just as much at fault as a man preying on a woman. I'll just, you know, point that out. Right. And that goes back to, I mean, and, and we'll talk about this, I think, a little bit later, just because of some of the, the things that we have planned to get into. But one of the biggest things for me is that the sexual assault and sexual harassment is a symptom of a much bigger disease. And so male, female, it doesn't matter. Different, you know, geographic region doesn't matter. Socioeconomic prowess doesn't matter. Yeah. It's a mental issue. And I think, you know, and not to blame it all on that, but there's factors that play into that that lead people down this road. And I think that's what's very important to realize. And I have a unique reason why I know so much about this, which again, we'll talk about, but understanding that portion of it and what seems yeah. innocent to some is definitely not innocent for all. Well, I'd really like to get into this with you, Charity, if you're comfortable, but can you tell us your story and your personal experience with sexual abuse? I will. So I'm going to start out by saying I'm not ashamed of my story. And I've never been ashamed of my story, but I also want to put out there that sexual abuse and sexual harassment can bring about a lot of shame. It can bring about a lot of guilt. It can make people feel disgusting or people get very depressed about it. And it can alter your behavior. It shapes your bias. It changes the way that you look at the world. And so, again, while I'm not ashamed of my story, Everything that happened leading up to this and afterwards has brought me to this place that I am today. And I don't say that in a cliche way, but when I start telling you exactly what happened and how it happened, you'll understand a little bit more about why I'm so passionate about this and how I can see it feeding into the bigger picture. So going back to the very beginning of my life, my mom and dad moved from Chicago to California, and my dad was a grandmaster chef. So back in the early 80s, making quite a bit of money, very stable environment, well, as stable as our 
you know, it's as normal can be, whatever normal really is. I had one sister out of the house and two sisters that were in junior high, and I was the baby of the family, the oops. And at three years old, three and a half, my whole world was completely turned upside down. Police came in and took my favorite toys away, and doctor's offices were definitely a part of the norm. And all of a sudden, everything that I knew was really turned upside down. And these are from my earliest memories. I don't have a ton of them, but I do remember certain statements that were made and people that were there. And the next thing I know, my dad is no longer in the house. And my mom and my sister and I are in Arizona. And we are living in a hotel. And that was really cool because it had a pool and really great views of the mountains. And we were in a new place. So for this innocent, so to speak, little girl, it was cool for me. I didn't really know any better. I didn't really realize everything that had happened. But where my dad went was to jail because in his depravity, he, sorry, um, felt it necessary to not seek help for whatever mental conditions he was going through, even maybe even know that he needed help. From what I understand, there was drug and alcohol addiction that I didn't know about. And that sent my family into a tailspin, I guess. Uh, and I ironically don't feel bad for me. I feel more upset for my sisters who in junior high and high school were taken at a very crucial age in social development and thrown into an environment where their social status, you know, was severely downgraded. And they had to start over in a new city with, you know, basically nothing. From then on, my mom did nothing but work trying to give us some sort of stability. We moved in and out of my aunt's house, in and out of other hotel rooms, shared an apartment, you know, with at one point in time in fifth grade, nine people in a two-bedroom, one-bath, 700-square-foot apartment. And so, you know, as it gets further and further along, you know, it's basically homeless. We would go in sixth grade. We moved back from helping my sister raise her new child in Michigan and had nowhere to live. And we were so thankful that a family took us in and allowed me and my mom and my sister, who was pregnant at the time, to live in one room in their house. And we all shared that one square room and they cooked us dinner every night and invited us along with them to all their family activities, they even bought me Christmas presents. And, you know, through junior high, it was tough. I didn't let it get to me. I didn't really know what was going on or was really aware of it, which I think was good. That ignorance is bliss thing really helped me through things. But all through that, my dad eventually actually got out of jail and would visit every once in a while. And I was around him with my mom always around, but we would go to old Tucson and, and things like that. And, you know, had some sort of a relationship with him, which was very strange looking back now that my mom would even allow that. And I don't even know why, and I'm not even going to ask her, but, you know, just those types of things. And then moving into my college years and eventually having children of my own, you know, my ex-husband, I would 
not worry, but it's very weird to have a parent-child relationship and not be concerned because of everything that I went through that my entire family would have been broken. Can I trust this guy? Like there's so much mental anguish and mental trauma that goes on and not in a debilitating way, but it makes you question everything about what's going on around you. And so just to to get to the point basically is that something that might've started out as comments or thoughts or what have you. I mean, most people think of sexual harassment as an adult saying inappropriate comments to another adult, but because again, sexual harassment is a symptom. People don't think about where does that stem from and, and where does that desire for whatever type of stimulation it is, why are they willing to cross that line? And where is the barrier? Where is that boundary? And, you know, is it going to stop with, you know, inappropriate comments? Is that even okay? And if it's not, because it's not, who's going to say something about it and do something about it? And as I've, you know, obviously getting into the industry and things like that, there are things that have been said to me, and I don't even consider myself, you know, hot to trot. I'm no you know, good looking hot mama out there. And I consider myself to be really fairly conservative. I'm not, you know, inviting any sexual advances or things like that. But at the same time, those messages still come through my Facebook page. And those comments are still made to me at trade shows. And, you know, you're left in situations where it's like, okay, stay in big groups, you know, and And I'm not necessarily worried about it because I do feel like I can hold my own in most cases, but I'm definitely cognizant of it and I watch it all around me and it really makes me sad, especially like you mentioned with the new people and the new talent coming into the industry that are, you know, we want these younger kids coming into the industry and to bring their talent that they have, but there's a huge level of naivety that comes along with them. And I think there's a lot of predatory behavior that they don't even know to look out for. So I, th- I probably skipped over a lot, but you know, if anybody wants to hear more, I'm, I'm. That was extraordinary, and Charity, I just, I really want to thank you for sharing that story. I mean, it makes me choke up. You just listening to it, and you're just very brave to share it. And you know, the question that I had is, you know, this terrible thing happened to you at three and a half. You know, I'm curious to know when you really confronted the reality of sexual abuse, you know, like, was it several years later where you, you just really realized what had happened to your family and what did that do to you? Did, did that make you stronger? Did that make you less strong? I'm curious about that inflection point you right. know, from understanding really what happened to you. Well, I think there was a time in high school because I've always been, you know, you know, with people that were close to me about what happened. And I, I had shared with a couple of friends in high school and they said, even the guidance counselor, and I said, like, you need to go talk to the guidance counselor. And I did. And she referred me out to like a psychologist. And I mean, that was more like trying to dig all this up. I'm living in the present. And again, I don't know why. I don't know how. A lot of people are not, I guess, fortunate is a good word like this to be able to just not have that weight on them all the time. And I didn't have that weight on me all the time. And it's like, okay, it happened. Like, what is harping on it for the rest of my life and feeling bad about myself for the rest of my life? I didn't do anything. I was an innocent little child. And even, you know, when it happens as an adult, we are not, you know, perpetuating this behavior. You are simply a victim. But that doesn't mean you have to 
play the victim, right? You can be pitiful or you can be powerful, but you can't be both at the same time. And somehow I have been fortunate enough to always be inclined to choose powerful. However, that being said, like I said, I went to counseling and people talked through it and asked great questions. And I think counseling was fine, but at the same time, I was way more interested in, okay, you know, I, I want certain things that I don't have. How do I get it? And that actually led me to life coaching and some other, you know, kind of different avenues. And through that, I was able to find some good resources. One thing, I was going to church at the time, and one thing came up, and it was for sexual abuse survivors. And I didn't even know if I really needed to go to it, but I thought, you know, what could it hurt? And we had this Mending the Soul handbook. And I got about halfway through it, and I didn't feel I really needed it at the time. But, you know, it's a fantastic resource. And then after having my daughter, actually, I think Kaylee was two, and some things came up. And that's actually, it's ironic to be, you know, 25, 27 years old and have everything come crashing down on you at that point in your life after not really paying much mind to it. But my dad called me, and he said that he needed me to talk to the judge and let them know that. I've forgiven him for everything in the past and to tell them what the true story actually was because they didn't get it right the first time and he went to jail erroneously and I needed to be the one to write a letter to the judge so that he could get this medication that he couldn't get because he was a registered sex offender. And that was probably the most difficult part of all of it and how this relates to sexual harassment, I guess, is you know a different thing, but... It, I said, I I can't do that for you, Dad, because, I mean, I can write a note, but I don't actually, you know, outside of the court paperwork, and because I have been so diligent about moving forward, I can't write a letter telling the judge that you are, you know, should be exonerated of this or what have you. And he's like, well, let me tell you what happened. And that right there sent my whole world into a tailspin because he decided that he was going to put it on him to try and make himself, you know, uh, free and clear of this, this quote unquote erroneous charge. Well, okay, fine. And then it was later on in, well, probably two months later after I was not returning his phone calls and I just had no desire. I was sickened by what he told me. And then to find the court paperwork later on and hear the testimonies of the psychologists and the doctors and the everything else about what happened and how everything happened. And to have that come to fruition and come to light, and then hearing that my dad, you know, after all these years, lied to me about whatever to try and get his way again, that's what hurt. And that, to me, shows me the mental state of somebody willing to sexually harass or sexually abuse, whether it be a child or somebody of any age, is that, you know, there is just something... That's not right. And they're willing to lie, cheat, steal, manipulate, whatever it is to get what they want out of selfish pursuit with right. no regard to how that behavior is going to impact the person that they are, you know, either talking about or having those actions against. And I mean, again, so it starts with something very simple as, hey, you're having, you know, conversations or whatever, but there are actual people involved and there are very severe implications mentally for them that you are not even thinking about. And how selfish of him and for all these 
people that do engage in these things, how selfish are we that we don't take the people that we're talking about or that we are, you know, acting upon into consideration? Charity, I've spoken with a number of different people about this particular topic, not only just now and sort of the the fact that it's become prevalent in Hollywood and Silicon Valley, but just, you know, over the last several years and just talking about some of these interactions between men and women with regard to sexual harassment. And, you know, some people take the approach. Interestingly enough, I've spoken to a couple of women that will say things like, listen, there are stupid men out there and there are stupid women that are out there as well. What do you think about that attitude? Is that insensitive or is there truth to that? I think it's both. I mean, I think that there are stupid men and women out there. I hate to say that. Sometimes I'm the stupid woman and I consider myself to be very intelligent. But I guess more than stupid, I would say it's ignorant, right? You know what you know, you know what you don't know, and you don't know what you don't know. And what we don't know is, you know, where are these behaviors and people rooted, right? Or as somebody new coming into the industry, I mean, you go out there. It was so funny because I was telling Robert Fivash about this a couple days ago leading up to this. It's like when I was a kid coming into this industry, I was like, anybody want to go to the hot tub? I didn't know that that had sexual connotations. I just wanted to go and hang out with my friends and drink some beer in the freaking hot tub. I thought that was cool. Come to find out, like throwing that out there to everybody, like kind of, I was like, okay, I didn't know. So, I mean, call me stupid, call me whatever. I just didn't have that type of experience. You know, I was never exposed to that. I grew up in a, in a religious environment and I just, I had no clue. And so while there are stupid people out there or not stupid, I guess let's for better terms, let's call them ignorant because we just don't know. I think that, that there are women who, and men who have no desire to take things to an inappropriate level. But I also think that there are definitely predatory type people out there. And so for the ignorant among us, it's very sad for those who are preyed upon. And unfortunately, it is much more prevalent than the media would lead us to believe or our communities would lead us to believe. It's huge. And one of the statistics, I guess, that I would put out there right now, and it's hard to see how it relates, but for me, it's easy to see how it relates is that 27 million people are in human slavery in the world today. And a large number of people that are enslaved are women and children as young as 18 months old that have been sold into slavery for fulfillment of sexual desires for men in the world, whether it be the Middle East, Colombia, and right here in the United States. The Super Bowl is one of the largest instances of human trafficking. And what does that come from? It's, it's all trafficked women that are brought in specifically so that right. people of high power or even not, you know, as long as they have the capital to spend, can engage in sexual activity with these women. And if that doesn't tell you about the depravity of our culture and the yep. ridiculous number of people and the absolute, it's here. It's in our culture. It's ingrained in, in our society. And it's not... You know, every once in a while, when we start talking to the people around us, just in my circle alone, the number of people that have not only had not an inappropriate comment or a, you know, a booty slap here and there or whatever, but the actual people who have been preyed upon, who have had people make sexual advances unwelcomed, followed them to their hotel rooms, and actually have had 
you know, really brave encounters with people, just my social circle alone is disgusting. Yeah. And many of these are industry stories too. Absolutely. Well, yeah, that's, I mean, my industry is my family and, and that's even more sad to me is because we are such a closed environment and people can't say anything. You know, it's, I think that's the biggest thing is what are we going to, we're going to call out customers. We're going to call out people who have the potential to be our future employers. We're going to, you know, why would we want to ostracize ourselves like that? And even right. me, you know, doing this podcast, I'm like, oh, great. What are people going to think of me? I'm like, I promise I'm not the prude. I'm not whatever. And I'm sitting here judging myself because I don't want to be the, you know, the person that nobody brings into the social circles anymore. I feel like they can't tell a joke around because that's absolutely not true. And nobody needs to feel bad for me or anything like that. But we do need to be aware that the different things that we say and the different behaviors that we allow around us you know, we need to put a stop to it. And if we don't put a stop to it, like I said, we're just as bad as the person perpetuating the behavior. Yeah. Charity, how do we talk about this issue slash problem in our industry constructively? The reason I ask this is we at Promo Kitchen have been having lots of discussions about how we dip our toe into this incredibly complicated topic. And one of the things, really our sole agenda item in doing this is to have a constructive conversation about sexual abuse and harassment in our industry because we know it exists. Now, that said, we have an incredible industry. There's many wonderful, wonderful, wonderful people that are within this space, but How do we talk about this constructively? How do victims talk about this constructively without getting into a witch-hunty, name-calling environment, which is not our purpose or goal in this at all, but we still want to affect change. We want victims and people who are concerned about this to have conversations, whether it's publicly through the promo kitchen environment, or even if it's privately, even if it's just a private conversation between two friends. What's your recommendation on how we keep this constructive and positive without it going down into a dark place? That's really interesting that you asked that question because part of me wants to say, I don't actually know. And that's, I guess, part of the reason why I wanted to have this conversation. So for everybody listening, when this topic came up and it was brought to the executive committee and to the promo kitchen chefs, I mean, obviously I'm outnumbered male to female, what, like 21 to one or something like that now. And that's not even the bigger part of it. I mean, for me, it was just like, okay, me too, me too, me too. It's like, I don't know that it's necessary that we as Promo Kitchen have just some random conversation about this. Like, how are we going to talk about it and how are we going to relate it back to the industry? And that's why I was pretty adamant that I was fine either way. I was outnumbered. Everybody said publish it and it's cool. But my biggest desire was that we not just put this out there and throw out a hey us too hashtag and open up wounds for people that have been victims that are hurting that we are not prepared to address and not prepared to help them heal and so i still don't have an answer as to how we can approach this super constructively and how we can go about solving the problem and making it a lot less prevalent. But I wanted to personally be the person that gets on this podcast because I do have a Me Too story and I haven't told it. I haven't put it on my Facebook status. I didn't really want to 
broadcast it because for me, it's not something that, you know, I'm not attention seeking in that regard. I didn't, I didn't want to share my Me Too story because I didn't like the commercialism aspect of capitalizing on people's stories or anything like that. I just, for me, I wanted people to know that it's out there. You are valid for feeling however you are feeling and you're not alone. And whether you're male, you're female, whether it happened, whether you're young, old, whether it happened inside the industry or outside of the industry. But moving forward to me is definitely not calling people out or, you know, sending people on a witch hunt. In this case where it's, you know, obviously something that's broken the law, then maybe there's, you know, a reason to maybe get uh, some higher authorities involved and, and things like that. But in my mind, I would say that as a preventative measure, maybe we could work together as an industry to Or, you know, just spread awareness of, you know, things that we can do as women or as vulnerables or as whatever in the industry to, you know, have a buddy system or something like that. Just some sort of contingency plan when things start going downhill or when things are uncomfortable or when things are starting to take a turn for the inappropriate side of things that someone would be brave enough to, whether it's a hand signal or a text message or something, to be willing to either take that friend by the hand and get them out of the situation. Or, you know, if you are a dude and you, you know, there's conversations going on, or if you're witnessing something, you know what, let's man up a little bit and let's make sure that we keep the colleagues that we care for in this industry safe and that it's a place where we know that we can go out and have a drink or two and we're still going to be, you know, that that there's nothing that's, we don't have to worry about inappropriate advances towards us. And men would argue, well, women invite that, women invite that. Well, why do women invite that? Just because women invite that, because they're lonely, because they're insecure, because they're whatever, does not mean that you need to play into it. So I'm going to just negate that excuse right there. Maybe we do, but you know what? If a woman doesn't know how to have respect for herself, help her to learn how to have that respect for herself. Don't disrespect her by taking that further or taking advantage of the situation. And just to put this out there, I'll tell you, I talk about Damon a lot lately. It's no big secret in the industry that we uh, have been dating for the last two years, but we weren't dating five years ago in Atlantic City. And I was wasty faced because I had never been drinking and I did not train for the marathon. I was at an industry party where the liquor was flowing freely and I just, I didn't know any better. I was, I was young and I was dumb. I was married. Damon had a girlfriend and he walked me back like, I don't know, maybe three quarters of a mile, a mile to my hotel, made sure that I got on the elevator got to my room, closed the door, and walked away. And I had never encountered a gentleman like that in my entire life. So fast forward, you know, five years and, you know, out of a broken relationship that I left for other reasons. Part of the reason that I'm dating Damon today is because he's a gentleman. And because in spite of everything being stacked against that situation and in numerous other situations I have witnessed, there's morals involved. And there are other really great men like that in the industry that respect the women in the industry, that have every opportunity to take advantage of people, to 
you know, go and take things into inappropriate places or make those inappropriate comments on the, you know, throwing, what is it, throwing spaghetti noodles to the wall and hope they stick or whatever that analogy is called, you know, whatever the reason that they're putting themselves out there, hoping for whatever they want, for as many of those guys as I have met in the industry, there are just as many knight in shining armor. So to all the decent men out there, you know, thank you for making it easy for us to be bros with bros. <laughs> if I'm an employer, okay, and I'm going to say, regardless if I'm a man or a woman, because I do think that this is something that is a people problem, not just exclusively a male problem, and I'm an employer, how do I make sure that I'm creating an environment at work that promotes respect and promotes equality in such a way where you or your team never puts a colleague, a partner, a client, or anyone in your business ecosystem in a situation where they feel profoundly uncomfortable with regard to either sexual abuse or harassment? Like, How, how do you create a culture that promotes that respect? Because I think that we've seen that's not necessarily the case. It certainly was not the case at the Weinstein Company. <laughs> certainly not the case at some of the venture capital firms in Silicon Valley that were reported very publicly. And I think, to be quite frank, has probably not been the case at some firms in the promotional products industry, as per our conversation here. How do you take that step of creating this environment of equality and respect? What are some of the things that you would recommend, Charity? Oh, man, that's a tough one. And because, I mean, my company, when I was running my company was so small and I have, you know, the company that I worked for previously was all women and one man and he was never there. So I guess I I might turn this around back on you, Mark, because you have obviously created a fantastic culture at Right Sleeve and Common Skew. And um, I don't know. I, I I don't know how to answer that question because I think that in as much as people have morals and values, I think it's just as well that they would be able to, you know, given a certain social environment laden with alcohol and who knows what other substances, do they have the propensity for that? So I don't, I don't know that I'm the best person to answer this. And I also don't know outside of that, if if there's a a really good way to answer it. I mean, I know what we have now at Peerless and I mean, obviously Dan is a fantastic guy. I've never seen him in an inappropriate situation. Everything is just good, upstanding, happy-go-lucky, wonderful place. Like there's just nothing. It's just not, it doesn't exist, but I don't know what you do specifically to work against that or to, to, you know, I don't know. (laughs) I'm putting this back on you, Mark Graham. I'm not sure that I necessarily have the answers either. I mean, as you say, I, I have been a business owner for for the last almost 20 years and having built two companies within the industry. And, 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 you know, it's interesting. I talk with Catherine, my wife and business partner in both companies at Right Sleeve and Common Skew about this a lot, not necessarily this most recent issue around sexual harassment, but constantly talking about culture and how you grow people and how you create an environment that creates successful people that win. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what our job is, right? It's focusing on the, the, the people and the process of the business. And, you know, I think from my perspective, any experience I've had with any employee is A, giving that employee all the confidence in the world that they need in order to go out and be successful at selling either promotional products or going and selling software licenses. And we have seen 
time and time again that if an employee or a partner of ours lacks confidence, it's either our job to give them that confidence. And the lack of confidence may come from a whole host of areas. It may be as simple as, I don't know the difference between a Gildan shirt and a Fruit of the Loom shirt. So it might be lack of confidence in product, or it may be a lack of confidence because they're not hitting their sales goal, or it may be a lack of confidence because 10 customers just hung up on them in a row, or maybe lack of confidence because a supplier just messed up an order and now they spent two days fighting a fire, or it could be lack of confidence because of something to do with them personally, maybe a lack of confidence because of a bad job they came from and they brought baggage into our environment. I could go on and on and on. And I think what we've recognized is that if you've got someone who is lacking confidence, they are always going to be a really, they're probably going to be a pretty bad employee or partner until they can address that. And I think that that's what we really try to focus on, which maybe is the insurance policy against some of what you've been talking about. You've outlined lack of confidence and trying to please in some of these social situations. And if you walk in with a lack of confidence, then you're right. You may have a predator prey upon you, or you may invite some of this attention yourself. And, and again, not your fault, but so I think we just try to really focus on building people up and training them to be as successful as they possibly can be. So if they were ever faced with a situation where there was some predator that was preying upon them, they would either <laughs> do something, maybe kick them somewhere really, really hard, or they would just never find themselves in a situation like that because they wouldn't make those choices. Right. I think the other part of it is understanding what's right and what's wrong in social situations. And I think we try to speak to our partners and employees about like, hey, we do business with people that we like. Be likable. But there's a difference between being likable in a way that sets you up for long-term success where that other person respects you and the short-term play. So we always say the short-term play is like going out for some crazy booze fest where you end up at four o'clock in the morning at some downtown Toronto club. Everyone's completely hammered. No one can you speak intelligibly at that point. And at the end of the day, like, have you really earned the client's respect? Eh, probably not. Or maybe the client just sees you as the good time Charlie that is just always going to spend a ridiculous amount of money on booze and food. And that's all they expect of you in the relationship. We may be a little conservative in that respect, but we just don't tolerate that. <laughs> so, so I, I think that our people don't really find themselves in those situations that said, we have not written the rule book on this. We're not experts in this by any means. You just asked me my perspective, and that's just a quick, you know, maybe a not so quick answer. Well, I think that, I mean, that, so in the last couple of days, of course, having a bunch of different conversations, two things came up. One is that you cannot, like you said, that there's like an oughtness, right? Like people are like generally good people or not. I, I hate to put it so openly like that or like so vague, but I mean, it's kind of true, right? So if something that I see, is wrong, another person might not see it that way. And so some of this is so prevalent because it's like, well, it's no big deal. And you're not going to ever be able to convince that person that it is a big deal. If they don't think it's a big deal, it's not a big deal. Exactly. And so it comes down to what is driving that person's behavior and what moral and value system have they built their life on? And that's huge. And whether it's religious or whether it's just monotonous or whether it's, you know, just, I want to be good and kind and whatever, that speaks volumes to how they're going to behave, you know, in an employer-employee environment. 
And the other thing, like you said, too, is you haven't written a rule book and nobody can. I mean, and in a conversation, he's like, I'm not going to go police my friends or police that group. Like it's, I'm not the morality police. I'm not going to put myself in that position where I'm sitting here trying to police other people's behavior. And that's exactly right. I mean, you really can't. You have to, I mean, I guess, avoid it. If we call it out, what good is that going to do? Is that really going to be constructive? I don't know, but I don't think you can. I think it has to be an awareness and I think it has to be proactive steps to making sure that these things, the instance of it is reduced or just is non-existent moving forward. And then the other thing that you mentioned too is, you know, confidence and insecurity. And I think that that drives a lot. I know that, you know, if you're having money problems, if you're having job problems, if you're having stress, if you're having whatever, there are not a lot of places that we have control. And I think we fight to gain control. Um, And I'm not a psychologist. I just play one on TV sometimes. But (laughs) like we fight to have some sort of control somewhere in our lives. And when you can't figure it out in your career and you can't figure it out at home and you can't figure it out with your money and you can't figure it out with your marriage, you know, I'll think because it's so prevalent, I think that it shows up with this type of behavior. Like people just want somebody that or something or a situation that they can have some sort of control over. And for whatever reason, you know, it gives them their kicks. So just being aware of that and putting some protocol in place to keep yourself safe from that if you're, again, male or female, just being aware of the kind of signs and, you know, looking out and not obviously labeling everybody a predator, but just making sure that you're cognizant and not putting yourselves in situations where you don't have some sort of an out. And obviously we can't always prevent things from happening, but we can definitely make sure that we're not playing into situations as much as possible. And if it's a place where, you know, you're intoxicated or you've had a couple drinks, just make sure you, you know, keep somebody that you trust nearby and, you know, if conversations get out of hand or things like that. And, and again, for dudes, just make sure that you're being respectful, whether the people are in the room or out of the room, it doesn't mean that it hurts any less. It just means that that person's not there to defend themselves or hear what's going on. So just be cognizant of that. There's plenty of other things that you can joke around about that don't have to deal with TNA, in my mind. Now, granted, I said, I am not exempt. I have been a bro many times. I have been in these conversations. I'm, I've been probably just as guilty because, you know what, it is funny sometimes, but it's really not. And it has long lasting implications. And then the other thing I would say from a confidence standpoint, things that I've gone through, I mentioned earlier that, you know, I sought out life coaching. It wasn't because I was depressed necessarily about my story and things like that. I really did not know any better growing up. I look back now, I'm like, oh my gosh, Charity, like you didn't even realize, like we had a one room house. We lived on one room apartment. We lived on uh, Burger King chicken sandwiches because my mom worked at Burger King and their Hershey's pie. I was just talking to somebody about this this morning. And I was, I always had people in my house. We were always eating Hershey's pie, sitting on my inflatable chair. My bed was in my living room. And I didn't realize until later, I'm like, wow, yeah, it was a cool place to hang out. And I didn't ever let it, you know, get me down or feel bad about it. But now looking back, I'm like, my friends must have been like, oh my gosh, we lived in a, you know, I, I went to a school with like a lot of affluent, you know, kids and it was an affluent neighborhood. And, you know, I walked around, I had one shirt that I wore, my one Mossimo shirt, like almost every single day. And that's all I could afford. It was 22 bucks is a lot for a shirt back then. But I was kind of, you know, now looking back, I'm like, man, you know, somehow I managed to stay oblivious long enough through that to get to a point where it produced drive in me. It didn't produce pity in me. You know, it's like I wanted something and I saw that I could have it. I didn't know how to get it, but I could figure out how to get it. And one of the things that helped me, I signed up for life coaching through this decide to fly thing. And we walked in and she handed us a book and I didn't understand at the time, but it's called the grief and loss recovery handbook. And this handbook 
you can join groups and you can seek out counseling and definitely, definitely do that. Do not rely on my advice at all to work you through some of these things because I know it can lead to depression. It can lead to suicide. This is a big deal. Sexual harassment is a big deal. But this grief and loss recovery handbook helped me so much just because it has you go through like your loss history graph and seeing, you know, it's like up by the time you're 30, you can have sustained up to 40 losses in your life. And that can be the loss of a pet. It could be the loss of a person, but it could also be a loss of an ideal or a loss of innocence or a loss of what you feel or an expectation. And they say that the prison that you keep yourselves in is one hand on one bar of the past and one hand on one bar of what you expect for the future. And neither of those two things are letting you live in the present. And so if you're holding on to something that happened and some guilt and shame because of the sexual harassment that maybe you feel like you played into or that you were, you know, you helped perpetuate or whatever it is, definitely reach out. A psychologist, somebody, a friend, anybody that can help start you on this journey to healing there. And then I think I would turn that around too, because this whole Me Too thing, Again, like I said, I didn't put it on my status. It kind of pissed me off more than anything because I'm like, what? It's going to be a a hashtag on Facebook for a week. And then the next week, we're going to be talking about some new cheap plastic promotional product. Or we're going to be talking about what stupid promotional stunt the Kardashians did or something that President Trump said. And this whole Me Too thing with all of these people hurting now have their wounds reopened. And they're going to be sitting here with nobody to turn to and nothing to do, but they're going to be stewing in their grief and stewing in their guilt and stewing in their pity and shame and nobody's going to care. And so aside from you, if you are a victim, going and getting help and moving forward with your life and letting the past just be the past, I would say to anybody listening to this that might be the predator, also get help. And you know what? Don't be ashamed of, I mean, be ashamed, but don't be ashamed. Like don't let your shame keep you from seeking the help that you need because it is a problem. And there are constructive things that you can do to work your way out of the depression and to work your way out of the behaviors that you might be partaking in that are contributing to you being this type of person. And it is wrong and it is not good. And it's not okay to say inappropriate things to a female or touch a female that's unwelcomed. And there's ways to go about getting help so that you can help be part of the solution as well. It shouldn't just be on the women who are being harassed to solve the problem. Right. Yeah, no, I think that's such a great point. And I'm so glad, Charity, that you had an opportunity to talk about where victims of sexual abuse and harassment can go and noting that there are many ways that people share their stories, you know, whether it's me too, whether you agree with that or not, or whether it's being very public and coming out, as we've seen some very brave women have done in some of these high profile cases in Hollywood and Silicon Valley. And as I was mentioning before, there may be some women that feel more comfortable in keeping it very private and just sharing that with a friend or a trusted partner. And I think to reiterate really what we were trying to do with this is A, have someone talk about their experiences and so grateful charity for you having done so, but then also to try to create a platform or get a conversation going around sexual abuse and harassment in the promotional products industry and also making both men and women aware of the incredible damage that it produces. And I also think to create awareness around, there may be a wide swath of people in the promotional industry, as well as other industries that are just not aware of their actions. That that may be these off the hand comments, 
We're not talking about physically touching women, where it may be very obvious and black and white, but we're talking about the verbal comments, the offhand comments, the, the, the ways of not building up a colleague's confidence, just things like that. And I think these are the small steps that we can take to continue to make this industry really, really great. So I think, Charity, this conversation, I think, will really help a lot of people that are listening. If anything, it may encourage debate. Maybe there are people that disagree with many things that were said, and that's great as well. At the end of the day, what we're trying to do is to bring this to the fore, talk about this in an effort to really make this industry as good as it possibly can be. So this has been wonderful. I really appreciate it. Yeah, well, thanks for, you know, being open to kind of, you know, expanding the conversation and kind of keeping it going. And I do hope that, you know, other people that are out there listening, if you have comments, I definitely, you know, definitely want to hear them. You Maybe you have great suggestions for, you know, things that we can do to, you know, play it a little bit more safe. And if at the very least this conversation does nothing but, you know, help your ear perk up when maybe something is said that's inappropriate and gives you kind of a bad tummy feeling that you're not going to laugh at it, or maybe you're going to, you know, change your behavior a little bit, or maybe you do end up saying something. But at the very least, I hope that it helps, you know, kind of bring attention to the little tiny things that snowball and become bigger things that lead to way much bigger things. Thank you for listening to this special edition of the Promo Kitchen podcast. Our goal here is to start a constructive dialogue about this important topic of sexual harassment in our industry. If this conversation has moved you, we hope that you will join the conversation in any forum, public or private, that makes sense to you. Our website at promokitchen.org hosts the accompanying article on this topic entitled Us Too, and it's one place where you can add to the conversation. Thank you so much for listening.